This is the podcast that finds the most elusive people, the everyday amazing kind that you know nothing about. I'm hunting these people down and exposing their beauty to the world. I'm Andrew Bracewell, and this is Everyday Amazing. But if you never have anyone to mentor you or, or show you how to do those things or how to budget money, all of those things become a huge stressor. And then your coping mechanisms, whatever those are, if they're negative, they're constantly getting in the way of you moving forward. Hello, good morning, and good afternoon to all of our listeners in the podcast universe. Today, we have two very powerful guests sitting in my living room. They are powerful because the work they do has the power to change lives. And today, we have the privilege of talking with them. Lifehaven Women's Support Society is an organization that saw a gap in the system related to a woman's recovery from addiction, abuse, and other related struggles. Lifehaven's purpose is to fill that gap and meet the needs of women struggling to change the course of their lives through a variety of services offered. One of our guests today is Teresa Trask, Lifehaven's Executive Director and Program Director. Also in my living room today is Deborah Jordan. Deborah is currently responsible for tenant relations at Christine Lamb Residence, which is a government-run housing solution for women at risk in the community. Deborah and Teresa cross paths and collaborate together as they often serve the same clients. Prior to working at Christine Lamb, Deborah also worked as a support worker at another recovery house where she also referred clients to Lifehaven. Both of these women have amazing stories to share about their work and the inspiration behind it. So I am going to give it my best effort to keep up and help the listener learn about all that they do. Teresa and Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It is absolutely my pleasure. I thought we should start today. This is going to be an interesting uh, show for me because I've never had two guests at one <laughs> time. So I'm very excited for that. So I thought I should lay some groundwork. Anytime I ask a question, I obviously would love both of your input. But to get us started, I thought what we should do is hear a little bit of background about both of what the two of you do. So Teresa, let's start with you. And I just want to hear a little bit about the Life Haven story and how it came to be that you are where you are today. Okay. Well, I moved here with my family back in 2004 from Winnipeg, where I was working downtown in the core of Winnipeg with people who were still active in their addiction, who were struggling with homelessness, a lot of poverty issues. So for me, when we moved to Abbotsford, it felt a little like I didn't understand where I fit in this community. It was hard to see the underside of the community where the skills that I carry and the passions that I have really fit. So when I was first kind of engaging with the community, I started working with the Abbotsford Police Victim Services Unit, where I was a crisis support worker. And that really gave me some insight into what's going on in the community and what the needs are in the community. I'm also a singer-songwriter, and I've always believed that music and the arts have a role in bringing relief and support to people that are suffering in any community, globally and locally. So also I started to take my guitar and go and share my music at the Women's Correctional Facility here in Abbotsford, at um, all of the Fraser Valley Women's Recovery Houses. And in the mental health unit at the hospital, I had um, some people that I had met in recovery that ended up there, and so I started taking my guitar in there. And it was just fascinating to me how 
this community of people and the needs represented were just kind of all intertwined. I would see some women in a recovery house and then I'd see someone at the correctional facility that had been in recovery or in the mental health unit at the hospital. And I just started to connect with all of these women at different levels and, and started to visually and just hearing their stories, see the gaps that were in our community for the, the services that they needed after they had the supports, the temporary supports of a recovery house or the mental health unit. So that's 2000. So 2004, you, mm-hmm. you come here mm-hmm. and then what, what year is Life Haven? What year does Life Haven? Well, walk us through that because I, as I understand it, you began living out and acting out what Life Haven is today before Life Haven even existed. Yes, that's accurate, right? So then, yes. when did, how did that work, and when did Life Haven actually come into existence? Well, through my connections with the recovery community, I I started to build relationships, individual relationships with women I met while I was going in and playing music. And through that, as these women were leaving recovery, a lot of times they had no idea where they were going to live, if they would be able to get a job. Sometimes they were struggling to get their children back after a long season of struggle where their children hadn't been in their care. And as I heard these stories, I just felt that it was necessary to walk alongside of them to the best of my ability, just as an individual. And I began to do that. Sometimes people were living in my home and my husband and kids were just amazing at welcoming them in and just helping them to get a resume together. And it was just so fulfilling and rewarding, but it was really limited because I was working, I had a family and financially and even my time, it was just limiting as to what I could do. And I just kind of started having these conversations with friends. And actually, Andrew, you were one of those friends at that time that we had this conversation about the needs in the community and how I could do more. And I couldn't really see beyond what I was doing just as an individual. And so, yeah, through these relationships and friends just saying, why don't you start a charity where you can get the supports you need to do this full time? And that was the conversation that sort of began this journey. And that landed in uh, 2010 with Life Haven being born, so to speak. So 2010, Life Haven's born. I'm going to skip through some of the details because I want to I bring Deborah into the conversation soon. But I just want to highlight, this isn't obviously how Life Haven started. I know it started in a more limited capacity. But today, give the listener some idea of the, the work that's being done and the services that are being offered to women in the community. Yeah, it's been a great journey. Well, right at the beginning of this journey, um, I had a friend, Ruth Grant, who was actually the director of a local uh, women's recovery house at the time, and she also had a private counseling practice. And so her and I had a conversation about this, and she was really passionate about the stages of recovery after women had completed a recovery program. And so she decided to join me on this journey. So she's been our women's counselor right from day one, 10 years she's been with us. And Deborah will probably speak into that in a bit. But Ruth is all I hear. I mean, we have this strict confidentiality. So her and I don't have any conversations. But the women that see her are constantly telling me how amazing she is and how she's really changed things for them. Then a few, several years ago, actually, we had a, one of our family or community events. And all of a sudden I looked around and thought, where did all these kids come from? And the, the room was just filled with kids. It was one of our, one of our Christmas events. 
And I just thought, what is happening? And a lot of women that year had actually gotten their children back. They had their life on track and their children were part of their family and part of their home and now a part of our community. And I realized that in talking to some of the women that there's a bit of a clash when that happens, especially for some of the women that hadn't had their children for years or maybe ever actually. And, uh, this conversation got me thinking, we really need to provide counseling for the children as well, because they have their own issues in this journey. And so Dina, who who started SHEAM Center, it's actually a really beautiful counseling center in Abbotsford, she started working with some of the kids. She has a therapy dog there and all these great um, ways of meeting the needs of the kids. And that, the the response from the moms that have had their kids there has just been amazing. So that's another thing that we've started to provide is that service for the kids so that the families are holistically getting that, that support that they need. Because the moms have their own journey, but then there's all these other, other things that complicate that journey when you're all trying to do life together in a household. Uh, the part that I play in this is, of course, just directing the women to the services within the community that they need. Also providing the, I do a lot of the business work with them, um, providing resume building, teaching them uh, interview skills, especially when you have, you have huge gaps in your resume and you have all of these complications. It can be terrifying. I've had women sit with me and we go through their resume and talk through all the amazing things about them. And they just go, I, I sound amazing. And I'm like, you are amazing. So just because there's these hiccups in life and we have gaps where life gets complicated, I feel like sometimes people just let go and say there's nothing good in me. And so for me, the journey has been to just teach people to see themselves as the good that they are and all that they have to offer the community. And, and that's really, really playing out. We have amazing women and families all through our community that you would never know have struggled with addiction and are just doing life and contributing. Amazing. So Life Haven, if I, if I try to summarize it, is that recovery houses and programs deal with an acute issue and it can be, you know, drug addiction, abuse, various levels of that. But Life Haven comes in then and picks up where the acute immediate problem's been dealt with, but now we have the challenge of reintegrating back into society as a healthy functioning member. Is that accurate? So that's anything from counseling, job opportunity. I mean, I think you and I have, we've discussed this before, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think there's been things like, you know, budgeting and health and nutrition Mm -hmm. and things that maybe some people take for granted that, that aren't necessarily just second nature to other people. And, and, and that's where those are the skills that help people integrate back in. Absolutely. And I think, you know, at least to my knowledge that you're doing that as well. So. Yeah. I've been teaching along the way, a lot of the young moms, especially how to cook nutritionally on a low budget. Cause often it's just like I'll buy KD cause it's cheap and, and just understanding you can go to the market and get fresh vegetables and a bit of meat and create these meals. And I have one young mom who's had me over for dinner a couple of times over the years. And it's an amazing little stir fry with rice, like all the things that I taught her how to make. And I just, Mm. ah, she has a little guy and I'm like, this is amazing. So yeah, it's, there's things that we take for granted that we learn along, you know, as children and as we grow up. But if you never have anyone to mentor you or, or show you how to do those things or how to budget money, all of those things become a huge stressor and then your coping mechanisms, whatever those are, if they're negative, 
they're constantly getting in the way of you moving forward. Sure. So it's, it's learning new skills, but also learning new coping mechanisms. And the recovery homes are awesome at that, starting that process of learning how to cope in a healthy way with stress, because we're always going to have stress in our lives. Okay, Deborah, I want to circle you into this conversation because you are also here with us in, in the living room. Yes. So your current capacity at, is at Christine Lamb Residence, yes. which is a, if I say this correct, it is a recovery home or it's a recovery residence or how what would you call it i would call it more of a it's kind of a blend actually because it's um it is women that are trying to get their life back on track so it's type of a second stage a housing and affordable housing um, we're funded through bc housing and um but we also have women and children that are fleeing abusive situations that have possibly been in our transition houses or other transition houses that also can come there because we are a secured facility and you've been there for how long i've been working with them for 3 years 3 years i believe and your job title is intake or what what is what i'm is your... a, it's called tenant relations and so i am sort of the first face that that women see i do the interviews and sort of go through the um our wait list and things and and phone and kind of see what kind of a fit they'll be there and sort of the level of their uh their need for housing we take sort of high risk situations and, uh, you know, they get a little more um, preference. Um, but we also will just go to the wait list for women that have been waiting for a while to see if they're still in need of housing and that. And so I'm kind of the first face that they see. Yeah. And is there, are these women referred in or how are, how are they coming to be in contact with you? They can be referred some through victim services, some through um, the recovery houses that they may be in and they can self-refer as well. So I'm curious how you two, cause you two have now, you've been in connection with one another for a number of years. Yes. yes. So you can both take a crack at this one, but <laughs> how is it that your, your lives have become intertwined? What's that? I mean, obviously what you're doing today is incredibly intertwined, but there's obviously a story to that. So how did that, how did that come about? Um, so I met Teresa when I was sort of on the other side of the <laughs> spectrum. Uh, I was a client at Life Recovery, and uh, my life was pretty devastated because I had been uh, I had been clean and sober for a number of years, and ran into some very tragic events that happened in my life. I had a number of the members of my family pass away suddenly, and. Uh, I had a young son that was um, really going through some difficult things, and um, I didn't have coping skills. Even though I had been clean a number of years previously, I hadn't really learned coping skills sure. uh, for a lot of stress. And so consequently, I used medication <laughs> and uh, ended up, uh, my life, I was devastated, and my life was a mess. And so I ended up going to Life Recovery, where this woman with the voice of an angel came in. and, and I did uh, not pay her to say that. <laughs> and uh, just moved my soul. And, uh, you know, kind of from that day on, we sort of connected. You know, I, I, uh, I just felt her soul you know, mm. and, uh, and wanted to know her. And uh, we, we got to kind of connect in that way. And uh, 
once I sort of finished my program at Life Recovery, I went at, they had just opened a second stage uh, housing that I went from the first stage to second stage. And I, I continued to uh, stay in contact with uh, Teresa and got involved with the counseling that she offered there with Ruth, who is amazing. And um, and ended up living at Teresa's house because mm-hmm. uh, she at that time she had a basement suite that she was there was another girl that was staying there and and things just kind of weren't working out um, from what I could see it was very new at the second stage at, at life recovery and um, it wasn't sort of what I needed at that time and so I moved in Teresa's basement suite and stayed there for for a while and yeah. we became very close and and um you know I've sort of utilized all the services that um Life Haven offers and it's been a, an amazing experience that's why I I uh, recommend other women to go there because it really helped me in my life wow yeah tremendous story to have been on one side of the conversation yeah. to begin with and now here you are sitting here talking from the other perspective. Yes. Yeah, I was actually at a, uh, the Mennonite, Clearbrook Mennonite Church did a fundraiser for Life Haven. And I had this video that we had done way back in the day, because I don't normally do that. And and Deborah was one of the people that had said, we all talk a bit. And it was just to encourage our girls at our Christmas event. And I needed something to play there. So I played it <laughs> and they were playing it and Deborah came on and then someone else came on and someone. And I thought all of these women have gone back to school, are working or contributing to the recovery community. I thought I need a new video. <laughs> so it's just, I don't know. I actually started crying. I'm sitting there in the middle of this service thinking, wow, okay, this is what I get to be a part of. And Deborah's amazing. And I get to be a part of all these amazing women's lives. So it's a, it's a win for me. <laughs> Do you have any idea of the kind of statistics over the, the 10 years in terms of clients served and, and, you know, some of these stories that you're talking about where people have totally turned their lives around? Well, I, that's really funny because I, I know you're a statistics guy. I, like, I, was, I do I like numbers. I like numbers. I was thinking about that, thinking I should get my numbers together, but <laughs> I am so not a statistic girl. I'm a person I'm girl. talking to Andrew. I need to get I, the numbers. That's what I thought. I totally thought that. And then I never did it because that's classic me. I have people ask that often. And we have... Oh, I have no idea how many women we've served over the over these 10 years. Probably active. We have about 50 women that, not that I see regularly, but that are just... But they're in the peripheral uh, yeah, of the program. Yeah, probably in that zone. But yeah, my numbers are terrible. But I just know that I, I some days I'm shocked. I, I can't go out into the community without running into someone who's, who's just doing amazing. And I just think, when did we first meet? And uh, I'll tell you one thing, though, that I've noticed that the one thing about this community that I think is really different and is making a difference is the long-term support. So often if you get into counseling, government-supported counseling, it's awesome, but it's limited to successions or whatever it is that mm-hmm. is provided, whereas we've never capped that. And so we have women who have been with us, of, I think of one person in particular, for nine years, almost at the very beginning, mm. and she didn't have a job, was on social assistance, didn't have her kids, and started this whole journey of getting a job, going back to school, getting a certificate, starting to work. 
And sometimes she hasn't seen our counselor, Ruth, for a lot of years. Sometimes she'll have these gaps where everything's normal and good. And then all of a sudden there's some triggers that rise up or family issues or whatever. And then she'll just come back and see Ruth a few times or whatever she needs. So I'm not involved in that. That is all between the counselors and the clients. And I just feel that when you have this backup plan, you can always go back to if you need to refresh or talk to someone. I don't know, Deborah can maybe talk into that, but I feel like that is this community of, oh, it's there when I need it. I think it's really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Coming from that uh, sort of background, that was one of the things that I really noticed was when women go into the first stage recovery, they're kind of in a cocoon, like it's very safe and they're kind of told what time to get up, what time to have meals, da, 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 da. Can I, can I get a clarification? I I don't want to, I want to stick with a thought, but can you just clarify for me, anybody, maybe the listener, what is the difference between first and second stage recovery? And then continue your, your story if that's okay. Okay. First stage is kind of acute, like you, you know, the life is like a mess. It's either some women come in from um, their life is devastated. They've lost their children or they've lost their homes. Their family has kind of said, we're done with you kind of thing. Or they they know they're going to die if they continue on the path that they're on. Like it's kind of they're at a real crucial time in their life where they have to make a shift or, or something terrible is going to happen. Mm. And so they can go into first stage. Um, that's where they're getting more sort of um, like program, like it's like from nine to three. So that's that protected mm. shell yeah, you're yeah. talking, you were just mentioning. Yeah. Okay. It, and so um, that that would be the first stage. Second stage is kind of once they finish that part of the program, they still need housing and they still need a certain amount of accountability and uh, safety. And so it's kind of like clean and sober living with less guidelines around them like they're sort of expected more to kind of you know continue on with their recovery program like going to meetings and different things like that doing some counseling um volunteering that kind of thing but they have more of a save what their day looks like and what their life looks like and so I noticed with when they were in first stage, they'd be so strong and powerful and, and you know, determined that they were going to make it. But then they would kind of get out and just slide back to behaviors that were familiar to them. I don't know if maybe it's because not having sort of a plan for their life or not having still that self-esteem building thing, or I'm not sure what it was, but you just saw it happening over and over again. And so that was one of the reasons second stage was created. But even there, it was still, you still just saw them, like when you're in first stage recovery, you've got all these women around you or, or you know, hope, you know, hopefully it's either men or women. It's a mess when it's not. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, you know, you, you have all these people around to support you. You've got the support workers, you've got the counselors, you've got your sisters in the program and all that stuff. Right. And so there's just all this safety, but when they're out on their own, it's just like, um, they get lonely. Mm-hmm. They get lonely. Mm-hmm. They don't know, they don't have anyone to kind of tell them the next steps of what to do. And so there was just a real gap there. And it was very sad to see because it was like, it just was like going off a cliff. You just saw these women doing really well in counseling and then just sliding right back to old behaviors. 
And, you know, it was, it was really good when I, when I met Teresa and I saw that there was that sort of uh, aftercare you know, of treatment where you still had counseling, you still, she would do different weekly little, you know, um, programs and stuff where we would do a book study or we would do um, just, you know, different things that still involved a support system. She became a really good support system for the women that came out of treatment that you didn't have when you're just in second stage on your own. And so, um, yeah, that was very, very much needed in the community. Is it accurate to say that a number of the people we're talking about who are coming out of second stage recovery would probably lack a family network that we take for granted? Yes. Yeah, that's so, very accurate. So, and that that is a lot of people's support structure, right? Like yeah. when I go, if I experience tragedy tomorrow, I have a I have a safety net mm-hmm. yeah. that'll catch mm-hmm. me. Yeah. But I, I would imagine that that's probably not the case for a lot of these women. And I think, I think too, what it is, even if they have family, the family, that's a part of them that the family doesn't quite understand. Mm. So if you've, if you've had addictions and your family has not, although they love you and they want to support you, they, they still don't understand that part of your life. And it's kind of like, okay, well, get on with it. You know, like mm. you've done your, your treatment. No, no, get on it. Go get a job. Go do what you need to do. But there's mm. still work that needs to be done on the inside. And so I think that's what's so important about the recovery community is that you, you understand each other, mm. you know, and it's safe to say, um, I'm feeling kind of weak today or, or I'm, I'm a mess, you know, mm-hmm. and people understand that it's not kind of like, we'll get on in it. It's kind of like, okay, how can I help you? Right. And that's where Ruth and Teresa are so amazing because that is a safe place. Like even today, even though it's been a, quite a while since I've gone to see Ruth, I know that I could go there if I need to, if my life starts feeling really messy and, and, uh, overwhelming, I can still tap into that resource. So I have a question that's been rolling around in my brain. What is the, is there a narrative that society has in our heads about quote unquote, these people mm. yeah, that, that need recovery or, you know, whatever. And where is that narrative broken? What, what is, or where's the gap? What's the, what's the fake story and what's the real story? Well, I, I really wrestled with this when I first started this journey of Life Haven because I'm I'm the one sitting and looking into these women's eyes and seeing them and seeing how awesome they are and the potential future potential and all of those great things. So for me, I'm so passionate about it that I just thought everyone I talk to is just going to be like on board, right? So I thought I'm going to get businesses to provide entry level positions and I'm going to have all these connections and it was such a battle for me to create those connections because I just felt there's a bit of fear that, well, what's going to happen if I allow this person in? And, and I just feel like if we let go of that fear and just look people in the eye and see the potential, I think that changes how even people can see themselves because it's like you see yourself as a reflection of what people are seeing in you and people telling you you're not good or you're, oh, you always do this or you're just going to keep this pattern going. That just manifests itself in how people respond. And so I just think this positive, putting in positive, no matter what goes on, 
So I just decided, okay, we'll just get them jobs. So then I just started working on resumes. Literally, Deborah can attest to this. We worked on a resume together. And it's just so exciting. I get these phone calls. I just got an interview and Mm. I got a job. And and then we tweaked them. And then I have a really young girl in her early 20s. And she's like, I I want a different job. I want to get a better job. I said, well, let's work on your resume. And then she got a better job. And it's just this journey of believing in people. So I think fear... And the fear of what will happen if I open my life to someone who has struggled with addiction. Fear on the part of the employer or... The employer Mm -hmm. or even friends or people like for us opening our home. I I can't tell you how many people said you should keep that work and your your family separate. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Mm -mm, not in my world. That's not happening. And we would have family breakfast together. And my kids were part of that. And it's so beautiful because it creates an openness and an awareness that addiction doesn't make somebody a bad person and the struggles that lead to an addiction. Like the addiction is the symptom of whatever those struggles are. They don't just go away. So a lot of families like Deborah was saying, it's like, well, we sent you to recovery or you've been in recovery. Okay, now get on with it. But all of the years and perhaps trauma, perhaps abuse, whatever it was that led to that moment, that addiction, it takes years to unravel all of that and learn new ways of dealing with life. And so I just think fear keeps people from that journey because it's like, oh, I, I, I walked alongside someone after they came out of addiction and they just went and used again. I can't do this. That's, if I did that, Life Haven would not exist. It's the long haul. It's the holding someone's hand when they need. And then look at like Deborah's amazing. Like the women that she supports and what I hear about you is amazing. And so, yeah, Deborah had to reach her hands out and get support at that time in her life. And now she's reaching her hands out to bring along other women. And that is community. That to me, that's being human. And I I guess to me, fear is the overwhelming reason why the community at large, I mean, I'm generalizing some, some parts of the community are really afraid of opening their business or opening their home or their, or their life or giving their friendship to someone who struggles with an addiction. Yeah, I I absolutely agree that it's fear and I think it's yeah, just not understanding. Not not understanding that you know it a person isn't bad because they get into bad situations, right? And I think there's a conception that um or a misconception that um you know, you just either lazy or you're just careless or you're just this or you're just that. And that's how you went down that path. And you just have to uh, turn back. And I think that um, there's a judgment almost that if you've led that life, that you are somehow less than worthy to be a part of everything, you know, everything else. I find it's a punitive. There's a lot of punitive mindsets uh, once you've kind of fallen that you need to be punished for, uh, you know, going down that path. And and it's really hard to break that mindset. It's really hard. Like there's times in my life where I absolutely don't um, open up to say, you know, I've had this this part of my past because I know that the person's perception of me will change. And I've seen it happen over and over mm-hmm. that you, you say, Hey, well, I've, you know, been in this. And then all of a sudden it's, it's different, you know, the way that they, 
they look at you. So I think it's just not understanding the power of trauma, for one thing. You know, trauma is a, is a thread that kind of goes through every mm. story mm -hmm. uh, in addiction, is there's been some type of trauma that has happened, right, that the person couldn't cope with. And so addiction is really a coping skill. It's good. Yeah. Is there, so that, that punitive judgment that you said that, I mm -hmm. thought, oh, that resonates, mm -hmm. you know, that the, there's that whole conversation around restorative yeah. justice and yeah. punitive justice. But in this specific situation, and you can answer this probably better than anybody, do you think the people on the clients, the place that you were in, do you think that they also judge themselves punitively? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I yeah. think it's a learned thing that I'm bad because I've fallen into some bad things or I've done some bad mm. things in my life. I, therefore, I'm bad, mm. you know? And that was one of the things that super impressed me that I have to mention about Teresa and Life Haven. One of the things I noticed was um, it, it actually made me cry. I was so... Um, moved by it that the first time I went to one of the gatherings she had, like I think it was a Thanksgiving dinner or something like that, that we mm. had. And she brought us to this beautiful place and she made this amazing dinner that, you know, was like a five-star dinner sure. yeah. and, and, and gifts and, and all this. And it was just like, whoa, like she would do this for us, you know, like I had never seen that before where she treated us like royalty, right? And that was so opposite of what I'd seen before. It was kind of like, you need to be grateful for what you're getting because look where you were before. Right. So now you, you know what I mean? And so I was so, so touched by that. And I knew if I was so touched by that, that everyone else was like, and I thought, this is how you restore people. Like you sure. bring them up to the level of where they're really supposed to be, you know, and that just, I, I, I was so impressed by that, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons why I totally recommend women to go because I know that when they connect with her and when they connect with Ruth and when they become a part of the community, they're going to see who they really are, who they're really meant to be and how they're really meant to be treated. Right. And that helps them to bring up their own opinion of themselves, you know? <laughs> yeah. They feel worthy. Yeah. Give me cry. It's going to be terrible. Now I'm going to sound all. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, the, mi the mics will make us sound good. Awesome. It's fine. Just go. <laughs> that is, that's a, a good point, Deborah. That's one thing that we did a spa night. You were at the spa mm -hmm. night. And the Wild Orange Spa at that time, my friend was managing there. And she brought her girls. And I, we put appies out and beautiful tables. And they had their nails done. And I just thought, if, if you're never... If you never experience this, if you're never treated like you're part of this community that experiences loveliness and mm -hmm. goodness and and beauty, then you you end up feeling you don't deserve it. Sure. And it's actually sometimes complicated for some of the women to receive gifts and to come to one of those meals and they just feel awkward until they relax into it and realize I'm worth this. I'm part of a community and we're all worth this. So for me, it's, I always do the best because I feel like I never really consciously thought about it in those terms, but I have had these responses from women just saying, 
it's just, you treat us like so, but I mean, we all need to be treated that way, mm. right? And shown that we're worth it, that yeah. we deserve to be a part of something like that. So thank you, Deborah. It's really moving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a hard time. I'm, I'm so entrenched in the conversation mm. here. I'm, I'm, I've got notes that I'm wanting to call <laughs> those questions, but you're, you're rocking me with your answers. Neither one so. of us is note girls. <laughs> thank so, you. Yeah. You're, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. So one thought I had or question I had was, is there something that you continuously encounter in this, in this journey you're on? Is there one demon or one thing where you could just say, man, if I could just get rid of that, that one thing keeps blowing up these women's lives. Is, is, is there something or not, or is it, can it, is it not that simple? Often it's boys. <laughs> yeah. That is the best answer I've ever... I wasn't going to hey, go there. But, I let Deborah go there. Hey, but hang on a second. Hang on a second. So statistically, that is absolutely true. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That it's is true. It's relationships. True. It's not always boys. But, but violence against women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If we removed every man, women wouldn't be getting beat on, right? I mean, yeah. I know that that's not the answer, but... Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I wasn't true. when I asked the question, honestly, because yeah. I'm a man, probably. Yeah. I wasn't thinking of that. Yeah. I was thinking of whatever, a drug, uh, whatever. But, but can you go ahead talk talk well, about that? Well, and and the, I think often it can be romantic relationships that that go sideways, and then there's this drawback to that relationship. But it's it's all kinds of relationships. Sometimes it's family relationships mm. that you go back to that are a negative influence. Sure, dad's uncle. Yeah, whatever. so I, I think it's, it's easy for people to just say, well, don't, don't live in that town. Don't hang out with the. Sometimes you have to separate yourself from your whole family mm-hmm. and all your friends and your boyfriend or girlfriend, whoever it is, and people just think that's easy. Well, just do that. That's the best thing for you. And then you're all alone in this world, you know? So yes, the relationships are a tie yeah. that is hard to it, untie. It's very, very difficult. Mm. I think it's because broken people usually will look for someone to fill that hole that's in them. Mm-hmm. They don't really have the patience or the understanding to know that they have to heal. Mm. They have to be healed. Right. And so often prematurely they will, some guy kind of winks at them and they're like, Oh, I'm, I'm beautiful again. I'm Mm. desirable. Right. Right. And that's, that's what they feel they need. Um, and they do need it to some degree, but not in that way. And over and over and over and over, no matter what you say, you know, like just like in, in AA, they say you shouldn't really be in, engaged in a relationship for a year mm-hmm. after you, you know, stop using substances. And but that seems to be the hardest mm-hmm. thing for them to overcome, that they are whole on their own or they're or they're seeking to be whole on their own. They they are still looking for someone to make them whole. It's true. Yeah. And even even when they have their children back, they will still seek out these relationships mm. because that's another part of. Yeah. Okay, so we're this conversation is only relevant because these women aren't landing in the arms of the best version of men. No, right? They say they're, they say they're pickers off. Yeah, <laughs> they, pick, they pick the wrong pickers ones. Broken. They're pickers broken. <laughs> they're they, pickers off, or the or the predator knows how to spot both. Yeah, uh, there's a bit of both. Absolutely both. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's, it's this journey of discovering that, that I deserve better. It's that whole thing of this is all I deserve. This is all I've known this. And, and there's, you land there almost repeatedly without intending to. And so I, I think, yeah, it's a journey of just discovering who, who you are as an individual, that you're okay. You're whole, you're a whole person. Mm -hmm. And then you can have healthy relationships, but it's a long journey of learning how to even spot that and not land in the same situation. But you can say that over and over. And it's, over and we over. still have the girls like, oh, no, this is different. I'm like, I hope so. So uh, what are the, I guess I'm, my brain's wanting to go down this line mm. because I actually get kind of angry when I get on this topic. But what are the, what are the ways in which the, the programs, the services, the systems are dealing with these men who are clearly a part of the narrative? Well, I don't, it's, it's difficult. Um, what I've been seeing uh, in the recovery house, I work a casual position and with the girls at Christine, um, I'm trying to steer them more to just stay around women, like to try to find their strength and their, um, their needs, have their needs met with other women, like in the friendships mm -hmm. and the, mm -hmm. of other women, like that's because that's, what's real. You know what I mean? It's not, I'm not bashing guys because you know, there's some good guys and all that. And, and actually the ones that even are messy are, they're just sick too. Right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, but, um, really if you can just stick with, you know, other, you know, find good friendships, you know, that, Fill your cup, you know, and just kind of try to stick with, mm -hmm. with other women and get your strength and then, and then see what mm -hmm. you attract, right? Mostly I'll tell them you are going to attract your sickness, wherever your sickness lies, that's exactly what you're going to mm -hmm. attract to yourself, you know? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And at Life Haven, we're not really focused on that side of things. So I can't really speak into that, but it's just empowering these women to to make those changes for themselves and give them the, it's like they were wearing a tool belt and sometimes your mm -hmm. tool belt's pretty empty if you haven't had anyone teach you or, you know, and it's just giving tools to put in that tool belt so that they can do life and, and have skills and tools that they need when circumstances come up or they meet a guy or they, you know, and they're able to make better choices for themselves and for their children. When I was researching a little bit for today, this is just reminding me of something that I encountered. So. Deborah, back to what you're doing at Christine Lamb. That's under the umbrella of this organization called Sarah for Women. Mm -hmm. And Sarah for Women, if I understand it correctly, is the umbrella over a number of services that mm -hmm. are available mm -hmm. to women at, uh, in the spectrum of need, right? Yes. Is it that that's accurate? Absolutely. So I went on the website and I'm, I now realize why this was there, but I will admit I had no idea what was going on. I'm on the website, I'm, I'm scrolling through, and on the top right-hand corner, there's a box on the top right-hand corner of the website, and it's a button that you can click, and it says Exit Site with an exclamation point. And I couldn't quite figure out, I'm like, what? And then I clicked it, and the moment I clicked it, it shuts the site down, and there's no trace on my computer that I've just been on that site. Oh, wow. Are you aware of this? No, no. I, no, I mm. wasn't. This is, I just, mm, I literally amazing. just did this last night. So it gives night. some confidentiality. Right. To so it. I, what the, the story I told myself in my head when that happened was, okay, there's people coming to this site who 
can't have others in their life know that they've been that's right. trying mm-hmm. to right. get out. Right. And it just all kind of came, like I just, the, the weight of the conversation that I knew we were going to have today all just kind of dropped on me in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I just went, holy shit. Like mm. that is, if, if we're having to put buttons on websites yes. yeah, it's true. to, to stop people from knowing what we're doing, then this is real. And I knew it was real before that, but it just, you know how something like yeah. takes it to another level where you, I just was, and I sat there in my chair and I just, I felt a little bit, well, a little bit, I just felt heavy mm, Yeah, no. thinking that this is, this is real life. Yes. When I first started this journey, I, the first girl that came and stayed with us for a while, she stayed over Christmas and I just, I cried that whole Christmas. I couldn't get myself together because the first part of that is that I sat and listened to her story and no, no one should ever have to speak that story and no ear should ever have to hear mm-hmm. that story. It was so horrendous. She was just born into hell and it just carried on. And I just, I felt this that heavy and I just didn't know what to do with it. And I thought, I'm just one, what can I do? I'm one person, I'm just this frail human as we all are. And I thought, how can I address this mountain of trauma and pain? And so as Christmas carried on and we didn't, you know, what you would consider a normal Canadian Christmas, Christmas Eve, we got together as a family and played some games. And then Christmas Day, we had gifts in the morning and then a meal. And so I bought her gifts just like I had my own kids and we did all of that. And then I was in the kitchen alone cooking and she came in and went, Teresa. I said, what? Because the rest of the family was in the other room. She said, is this what people do? Wow. And I went, what do you mean? And she said, like, is this, wow, is this what Christmas is? This is what people do? And so I, I got all choked up, but I kept, kept it together. And I just said, well, this is kind of an average Canadian Christmas. Yeah, probably a lot of homes are, are doing wow. this sort of thing. Then I went in my bedroom and just bawled and then had to get myself together mm-hmm. and come back. And I just thought, I can't do this. But then I just thought, I looked at her and she was just loving her time with us and she stayed with us on and off over the years and she's doing amazing now. But I just thought, how can I not do this? Mm. I can do this. I can do this. But thankfully, Life Haven created a way where I can do more and have more resources and just uh, provide counseling, hire people to do that that are skilled because that's not my thing. I'm not a counselor. I'm more of a mentor to these girls. So yeah, there's heaviness and weight. And I think fear of that, because it feels overwhelming, can make us go, I, I'm not enough. I can't do this. And, and we just leave it because we can't do it. But I say we can all do it. We just have to go, I'm one person. But as a community, if we all do a little bit, we can make a difference. And I see with Life Haven that we've done that. Yeah. Mm. I can confidently say that now, actually, sitting with Deborah right <laughs> in front of me. Mm. <laughs> so what has each of you, I guess, can answer this from your own perspective. You used the word luck as you were talking about people's circumstances. And that jumped out of my head because this is something that I've thought through and I've drastically changed my viewpoint in life on this topic. But I'm curious what these experiences have done for your perspective and the conversation of luck and free will and consequence. And what do people actually have control over when you see some of these shit circumstances that people have been handed by no choice of their own. Mm. And then, you know, circumstance like mine, where I was given every A-grade opportunity ever to succeed. Can you speak to that? Well, I think that's one of the reasons I 
do what I do because I am a perfect example of what has happened does not have to define you. Mm. Like, yeah, it's awful. Like some of the circumstances people are born into or, or, or find themselves in or things happen to them or, you know, choices that they make, whatever the reason for them um, encountering devastating circumstances, that does not have to define you. And there, I think it has to be, it has, something has to shift on the inside of you. That fight that's in you has to come to the forefront to say, no, I am not going to allow other people or other circumstances to define who I believe I am, you know? And so I, I, that is the reason because I really, um, say that to them a lot. Like, no, that's not who you are. I see who you are. Look at what you've come through and it hasn't destroyed you. That means you have enough fight to turn this ship around. You can do this, right? Mm. I see the potential in people. I see the power in people. And I believe that for every bad circumstance, there is a power that comes behind that. Like if you can overcome something then you actually have a power in that area to sure. to yeah. bring someone else, you know, into their strength, right? And so um, I think it just has to come where they come to believe, like there's a, mm. you know, that, yeah. yeah, that this does not have to define you. It doesn't matter what's happened. You made it through that. It didn't kill you. And so that means you have that much power to move forward. Yeah, and that's why we did our a women's retreat this past year, which was the first time ever. And I think a lot of what we're trying to do is teach women to think those thoughts, mm-hmm. to understand their strengths. It was a full weekend. That was amazing was to me. Very it was a, the, in 10 years I've been trying to do this and pulled everyone together and just wanted to make it beautiful and special and had Tamara, an amazing counselor and speaker, come and share on the Brené Brown Freedom Sessions mm-hmm. type wow. material. And I still have women quoting from that weekend to mm-hmm. me when they're talking to me. Can you explain it's that amazing. weekend in detail? Like, what did you do? This sounds amazing. Oh, it was good. It was. I just have to share an anecdote because the first... I think my thought was, I think a lot of women that are a part of our community have never done this weekend getaway where all your meals are there. And so we went to the Mark Center here in town, uh, which is an amazing location and Mm -hmm. it's nearby. It's a great facility. Yeah. So a lot of our women don't have vehicles. And so to go, you know, further afield would have been more complicated. So we went to the Mark Center. And when we were signing in Friday night, I had put like little goodie, I don't know what the, you would call them, bags on each bed with just like a journal and just little things, fuzzy socks, cozy things. And one of the women came running in and then I had put all these snacks out and we were just starting and she just filled her plate with snacks. And I just heard out of the you know peripheral hearing, she just yelled, I've never been to a women's retreat before. This is awesome. That's, a, that's incredible. And I just was, this is awesome for me. It's so good. But really... The material, maybe you can speak to that, Deborah. Like, I feel like that material, the Brené Brown material, it's just dealing with issues of shame. So it's understanding that the traumas and the things that you think would keep a person from ever being able to do life normally, whatever normal is in that, in that person's world, 
I feel like our perception of normal needs to be a little bit changed. That's a little aside <laughs> because what we think is normal, we have to kind of look at someone's life and what normal for one person is, yeah, is so. not normal for another person and they can't attain that. But that weekend was just, we did session after session of, of just learning to deal with shame and learning to see yourself differently and pick people in your world that build you up and show you who you really are. That's a big one. And then I would go outside and they have a hot tub there. And some of the young girls were all sitting around in the hot tub with music playing. And it was just a lot of beautiful moments. Yes. Really beautiful moments. It was very good. Yeah. And I brought my friend Rochelle out from Winnipeg. Her and I worked together in Winnipeg. She's a psych nurse in an eMERGE ward. And she uh, teaches outpatients the Brené Brown material along with um, cognitive behavioral therapy. They combine those. So she came and dealt with the mental health part aspect of because a lot of times addiction and mental health people are struggling with both of those things and that dual diagnosis is very complicated and she dealt with a bit of that and yeah we tried to kind of cover a lot of ground but it was a beautiful weekend it was awesome yeah i wonder sometimes if the brené browns of the world you know are people who have that kind of reach mm. really have an understanding of how incredible their reach is and the impact they're having. Like, it's just, it's fascinating yeah, to me that, you know, so. we're sitting here doing this, you know, talking about this mm. and, and here somebody who we've never met has played such an integral role and her material is unbelievable. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's played such an integral role mm. in, uh, in, you know, this life changing stuff. Yeah. I, I just find that fascinating. It's so cool that, that yeah. we can do that. Yeah. That's one of the things I'm hoping to start this year is evening sessions where uh, Tamara continues to teach that material. And so, yeah, we're hoping hoping to branch out and do a few new things. I want to talk a little bit. I, I have a, two opposite questions. Um, Deborah, you're obviously a success story of this, right? Um, and so I, I'd love to hear about another success story. Not that I don't like hearing about <laughs> you. Talk about another success story. But then I thought, you know, maybe it's important also to ask about uh, the opposite. Mm, you know, a yeah. story, obviously we're not going to use people's names and protect yeah. privacy, but... I'm sure you encounter that. And although that's devastating, I think that's equally as important mm. to share and to talk about. So I'll, I'll leave that to the two of you as to who mm. wants to answer what, but um, can you talk about that? I have found my greatest complication has come from the combination of addiction and mental health. For me, Rochelle, my friend in Winnipeg, has been a constant source of information. So she's kind of been part of our community from a distance where I'll phone her and talk through some of the mental health aspects because I feel like that interrupts what you're trying to do. Not, not us, but the woman herself, what she's trying to accomplish. I've had a young woman who went back to school and got a certificate and got a job and was working fine. And then hereditary mental health illness came in. Her, her, her family has struggled with this over the generations. And I just watched everything crumble. And it just kind of terrified me in a way because I thought, this is a monster. How can I address this? Because it's not as simple as support the woman, give counseling. It, we do have Abbotsford Mental Health is amazing and have really great programs. And so just referring the women into Abbotsford Mental Health is a constant thing for me when, when mental health is an issue. But I feel it's, it's for me, anytime there's been someone who just really can't 
continue on the journey that they want to be on. It's in my world has been mental health related. And so for me, all of all of the resources where I can understand mental health better, where the women themselves can understand and all of the help they get through Abbott's for mental health is it is I the same the same woman to me is a success story. And mm. if you saw her today, you would maybe not agree. Okay. So that's okay. why I'm saying how normal in one person's world, you can't look at that as your defining normal for someone else. So I knew her when she was just soaring, doing her thing. And, and then I went to visiting her in the mental health unit where I couldn't even recognize her. And, and now she's working and doing life, but still struggles. And to me, I'm like, wow, look at you. This sure. is awesome. But if we measured her now compared to before this crisis happened, it doesn't look like success. So I, I feel like it's just not using those generalized measuring standards. So, so I still think she's a success, honestly. But, but for me, mental health just really interrupts yeah. the journey. It's so Very frustrating. Difficult. I've had, you know, seen where women have, you know, regained their children and went on to get like bachelor's degrees and now are working in the field that they always wanted to do either their nurses or their, you know, social workers or something like that. Like there's that end of the spectrum too where they're they're no longer here. You yeah. know, they've died. Wow. Yeah. So Teresa, that comment you just made about adjusting our I'm just actually trying to overcome your last comment about yeah the, yeah. the consequences your comment about adjusting our expectations mm -hmm. that's something that you know you've learned to do or you did naturally I, I I don't know but how do we what's the conversation that we have to have on a societal level to be able to see something as a success as you mm. as you see it because I I don't see I probably say that I fall in the guilty camp of not having that view, right? Like I, mm. my standards would be off. I'm not as, I'm not on the ground like you are. And, but I do feel like maybe that's part of the problem. Do we need to shift our expectations and understand that, you know, somebody like whom you just shared about, maybe that's as good as it's going to get. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's great. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Yeah. I, I remember we had a big Christmas event and she was there and I was just so excited to have her there. And someone who had known her from prior years came up to me and was just shocked and said, what's happened? And, and I was confused. <laughs> and so like they were seeing her as she was and she looks totally different and they just thought she's doing horribly. I was like, no, she's doing great. She's here. She's not in the hospital. This is awesome. So I think unless you're in the journey, I've learned to have more patience with, cause I, I used to be like, come on, everyone see these women as I see them, but that's, I'm in the journey. So I get to see every day the shifts and changes and the celebrate all of those things. And so I think, I think for people who don't understand and who can easily judge, I would say just open yourself up to some, like, be curious about the story. Absolutely. Like, be curious instead of just looking at someone and saying, oh, wow, I don't want to be near that person. Something, you know, just think, how did that person get to this place? Life is so interesting when you're curious and when you ask someone their story, it's amazing what you hear and it changes your perspective because you, you know something about the person then and you're a bit a part of their journey. And so I just, 
I would just welcome everyone to ask questions and be curious and not be afraid of people that look different or you just don't understand their life. Yeah. I don't know. Do you feel like you're, so you guys, I mean, you are like literally on the ground dealing with yeah. the, you know, the real issues. Do you have a conversation in your head about what we're doing at a government level or things that you're fi- find that you're pounding up against from a societal perspective? It, can you talk about that? Like, is there something where you go, if we could just fix this, mm. then we'd be here. Yeah. What is that like in your brain? Oh, so many things. <laughs> I, you know, Deborah and I have had many meetings about this. <laughs> We're going to change the world. Yeah, absolutely. You well, know. I, 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 I'll say I do feel like you have more authority than anyone to speak on mm. the topic. <laughs> so don't be shy because mm. yeah. I, I do grow incredibly tired of hearing people mm. run their mouths who aren't in a place yeah. to talk about it. So yeah. please go for it. Um, well, I have so many visions and things that mm-hmm. I see. For one thing... Um, when I was in the second stage, it was, it was, um, necessary for you to go and volunteer at their thrift store. And so a lot of girls really rejected that. And I could see it too, because it took a lot of time out of your day when you're trying to figure out life, what do I want to do, but I'm obligated to do this. And so I started thinking like, if there could be like a program, like you actually learn skills when you're volunteering. And one of the major reasons that women relapse is poverty. Sure. They only get like 90 bucks a month from income assistance. Got to figure out a way to get money. So they they revert back to old ways or, you know, and so I thought, what if when they're volunteering, they get paid a minimal amount that income assistance doesn't take from them. And they're learning a skill that they can, you know, like Mm. say that, they get paid like, I don't even know, but just money. And then they're learning a skill like in, in retail, you're learning, you know, how to handle money, how to set up the store, all these different skills that you'd be able to use for when you're on your own. And, um, but then I saw, I was talking to Teresa about it and it's just like, you see here in Abbotsford, there's so many businesses and so much wealth. You think, why wouldn't they Mm -hmm. do a program where, okay, we're going to take a chance on you. You come in and you learn this Mm -hmm. business. We'll pay you this amount to train you. And, you know, but they, they just, don't want to take a chance. I don't, I don't understand. It. So that idea has been brought forth and it gets well, shot down. St- or? Okay. So 10 years ago, I literally thought the whole world is going to be on this. I'm going to go and I started going to the businessmen's meetings and luncheons and all the political meetings regarding housing issues. And I just thought I'm going to get involved politically. We're going to get all the businesses in town to, to be a part of this. And I just, um, I had put proposal after proposal together and I literally thought it was just going to happen. And it just didn't. Uh, granted, I have not re-approached that style. Uh, and I'm hoping that now I'm, I'm moving more into the executive director role and I'm hoping to, to get a little bit more active in, in the politics of it again, because we housing is critical yes. because as we know, for Across the board, housing is critical. Never mind for people living under mm-hmm. the poverty line. It's really, really critical. But I, I felt like I was constantly banging up against these walls. One proposal I had made for a, a businessman's luncheon, they contacted me prior to doing it and just said they changed their mind. They didn't want to hear the proposal. Mm. And I just thought, people 
want to, this town is, let me just say, this is a generous town. It is a generous Generous town. Generous town. But in some respects, and I'm going to get a little harsh here, I feel like people want to throw throw their money, money, Mm -hmm. but they don't want it to touch their business. They don't want to touch their personal life. Sure. Just I'll throw my money at, and just you guys do something and then just... mm. So I felt like unless we get involved as a community at a personal level, and I wasn't asking to put them in accounting in charge of your money. It was like entry-level positions to teach a skill, a trade, mm. and we would be the umbrella over that. So if there's you know problems, we'd be the intermediary. So I started feeling frustration because I was so busy on the ground, as you said, mm-hmm. that I didn't have time for all of that because it feels like when you start down a political path of trying to get change to happen, it takes so long. It's like meetings after meetings and every meeting Mm -hmm. feels like it's getting nowhere and I didn't have time for it. So I have to say that I kind of gave up on that side of it, but I'm hoping to pick that baton back up because we need, I mean, when we needed housing and I was so desperate, Christine Lamb was built and that was amazing. By the time Christine Lamb opened her doors, there was a wait list Mm -hmm. from, and my girls were on that wait list. And what's the wait list like today? I don't know, Deborah. Can like, are we talking that. fifty people, hundred people? Like, what, oh, what? it's extensive. Like, we have one to four bedroom places in there, and they're all at least thirty on each list for each size space. Wow. So, yeah, we could use at least one more Christine oh. Lamb building, oh, if yeah. not two. Three. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's hard. It's I I feel like there's funding issues, there's all kinds of issues, but I haven't been involved for several years in those meetings, so I can't speak today to to what the issues are, but Okay, well, for know. the purpose we have the microphones today, mm, yes. and this is our meeting and we yes. can do whatever the hell we want. Yes. So, <laughs> I I just something stuck out to me and I'm I get pissed off when things don't make sense to mm. me, so I want to go back to something. So we have women who are in a I think you said it was the second stage of recovery where they're forced to do some level of voluntary work Mm. right Mm -hmm. and we have overwhelming statistics that prove i mean before you even said this today i knew this to be true poverty is like the greatest cause Mm -hmm. of of relapse Mm -hmm. yes it is and so we're having these women volunteer forcefully to you know as part of the program and we're lacking the basic common sense to figure out a way to pay them a small amount of money to take them out of the poverty which is in fact, what's driving them back into yeah. the relapse. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. This to me is totally fucking illogical. Yes. <laughs> sorry, I, I only have one I way had to a vision. That. I had a vision initially. You actually took me to look at that building. I had a vision initially of having office space, meeting space, and then having a little shop where we could sell. I had gone to actually India to a place called Lydia Home where they were taking women off the street and teaching them to sew bags and make jewelry. And I thought, oh, we could serve them by buying their stuff and then our women could sell it and learn retail skills and we could hire girls from so i have a huge vision for that because it's that's one thing that's not happening the 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 provision of jobs and just learning a skill getting paid to do your job and learning that oh i'm worth this paycheck oh i'm i'm a good worker oh so is it is it literally just this like is it well like is, is there a uh uh, thought pattern out there somewhere in the government mm. power levels. It just says, well, we can't, we can't pay these women because they're drug addicted and they're just going to go blow it on, on something like that. Like, is that literally the level of thinking or why are we not? Well, that, why can't we figure this out? In that particular instance, it is a, all of the people working at that store are volunteers. It's, it's not making a lot of money, right? And the money that is there is going to support 
the recovery house. Yes. So, so it's like the money is supporting their services. So there's, there's some give and take there actually. So, so. let's play a pretend game. Mm-hmm. And I realized now we're just, you know, playing a game is mm-hmm. all it is. But mm-hmm. like if the money showed up tomorrow. I'm on it. And, and, <laughs> and no, I'm serious. If the money showed up I'm tomorrow, serious too. do you, do you suggest that, that there wouldn't be any pushback to allow these women to be paid a wage? Or is there something within our system that, you know, while we're helping these women, we're still actually oppressing them in a way that we're, we, we don't think they can handle a paycheck or is that totally unfair? I, I don't think that's I, the thinking. I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. what it is. I think it's almost like, you know, it's part of learning to give back to where you, you know, you, 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 you receive something from this. So yes, you need to give back to society. You need to give back to the, the, you know, the place that helped you. That's all fine and good. But I think there could be a greater level of when you build a person up and mm-hmm. help them to succeed, they are giving back because they in fact are becoming Absolutely. a part of the solution yeah. that's in our society. Right? right. And so I I I just Just see, because you're getting paid doesn't mean you're not giving back. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Well and I think that probably as we're talking, that's probably the biggest gap is is an opportunity for employment because Mm -hmm. coming right out of recovery especially if you've been in and out of recovery over the years those gaps can be complicated so if literally if we had a network of businesses on hand going yeah i have one or two positions just come bring them for an interview and we had a system in place that would change things they yeah. they've proven in other in other communities like in Europe and mm-hmm. that that when you when a person has been you know actively in addiction and okay everything they they've become a mess they've given them the choice to either go to prison or they can go through this program where they're sort of rehabilitated into a community and they have found that to be the most successful model of rehabilitation Mm. is actually supporting this person to become a part of a community. Mm. And they have much more success Mm -hmm. in those people not going back to that lifestyle because they belong. It's true. Mm. Yeah, I was actually in the Netherlands at the Hope before Life Haven started, spent two weeks there, and it's a three-year recovery village. So you start in first stage where you're all living together and you have your psychiatrists and your counselors. And then they move into second stage housing within this village where they start working and they had a couple of job opportunities right in the village, a paper plant and something else where they actually were paying them, but also making money. And then they went on to these little townhouses at the tail end. It Mm -hmm. was fascinating to me. Uh, That's when my my vision was so huge at that point. I'm like, I'm doing this in Canada. And you're right. They just have great success. And then when they live in the townhouses, they go out of the village to work and then come back Mm -hmm. and they still have their counselors. Three years later, their their success rate was huge. Yeah. I I, I actually created a proposal (laughs) for a home. Yeah. And it was like a two year proposal where it was like sort of second stage after coming out of treatment where they're still pretty cocooned and, you know, have this, you know, where they're deciding what it is they're going to do in life. And, and it just went on to, to be quite Mm. like what you're Mm. saying. And, um, I just know that those are successful models because it's walking with the person and helping them to be established in the community. And those are the deterrents. Those are the deterrents to, to going back to that life. Your life becomes so much better that going back there is just not even an option. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's good. What's a moment that 
each of that sticks out in each of your heads if you were to think like this is the most rewarding this is the thing that i this is why i do this or why i did this yeah i already i already mentioned mine it, it had to be watching that video because when you're day to day working and most of the work that i'm doing is one on one so i'm seeing one person and then another person another person and and you're you're talking with them you're encouraging you're you know getting things set up working on job skills all of those things that's all you're seeing and you just the big picture is just kind of out there in the community and so when i sat and watched that i just thought this is our story and it doesn't end with the six women that were in that video i i just was thinking of name after name after name that's out there yeah contributing part of the community doing life and I, it all just felt 10 years of kind of some days going to bed, like, am I making a difference? Is, do I know what I'm doing even? It just all settled. And I just thought, this is what we're doing. This is, we're just creating a way. It's like the three-year model, only not all living in a village together. Mm. We're doing it, but it's just, you know, kind of an extension of the broader community. That, that was the moment where it just all came to a head for me. And I just thought, this is what we're doing. We're, we're walking for years alongside mm -hmm. to create an opportunity for change. Mm. Um, oh, I have a number of them. I mean, you get ones almost every day where you mm. just think, yeah, this is why I do this. I think in my own life, um, you know, being able to just look at my grandson and, and, you know, he trusts me like I'm everything to him. Right. And, and that's why I did it in my own life. Um, to see uh, one person in particular that was, I picked her up when she came into uh, treatment and she was just this broken woman sitting on the curb, you know, in the moment that we pulled up, she just burst into tears. And now today she's actually now a count. She's now a support worker working on becoming a counselor. Wow. And uh, she's married and she's reconnected with her family. Um, yeah. And so those are the reasons. Mm -hmm. Those are the the paydays. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes there's long dry spells yeah. between paydays. <laughs> well, amazing. Yeah. This has been amazing. And I'm sincerely grateful for uh you spending time with us and sharing stories and inspiring us and giving me new motivation actually to uh to play my part as well. But before we Part ways, I, I do, I don't want to forget this. I want to ask, how can we find each one of you online? How can we help? What's the best way to reach out? All that kind of stuff. Maybe, Deborah, start with, um, with how people can, can reach out to Christine Lamb and um, what you're doing. Absolutely. Um, you can look up Sarah for Women or you can just, I mean, if you're in need of housing um, or you know someone who's in need of housing or in, in, in abusive situations or whatever, you can just call Sarah for Women. It's uh, on Google. Or um, you can phone the Christine Lamb residence. Uh, we're listed in the phone book. Or you can put in an application. If you just Google Christine Lamb, mm -hmm. uh, you can put in an application. We're pretty, we're pretty accessible. And if people want to you know, financially contribute or get involved. Same thing. Go to the, go yeah. to the website. Go to the yeah. website. We yeah. have all the information there. And then what about for, uh, for Lifehaven? If you want to find information on Lifehaven, it's lifehaven.ca. We're simple. We do have, if you're interested in donating, which we always desperately need, right on the main page, there's a donate now button and you can just press that button and donate towards the work that we're doing and 
hopefully we can just keep growing and building and doing more for the community of women we're working with. And do you have any kind of social media presence or no? We are on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I'm i the one regularly not doing over, that and I'm busy. So it, not overly it, active. It, no. No, but, no Instagram? Uh, no Instagram. Okay. No. Okay. Yeah. I know I keep being told that and I'm like, you know what? The day that I have two minutes to rub together, I'll start on Instagram and you'll start <laughs> seeing stuff, but I don't. Yeah. Well, thank you again for your time. Thank this you has been thank you for awesome having us. and uh, we'll uh, hope to chat again someday soon. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks for coming with me, Deborah. Oh yeah. It was my pleasure. <laughs> Bye for now. I don't know that there is a more applicable episode for a show that prides itself on finding everyday people who are doing something amazing. During this interview, on multiple occasions, I found myself so deeply impacted by what was being shared that I lost focus on where I was trying to take the interview and what my next question was supposed to be. These are real life stories. This isn't a movie or an article highlighting something from across the globe. There's a battle for human life and dignity being waged on the streets of our local communities. And these two women, Teresa Trask and Deborah Jordan, are on the front lines defending the vulnerable and bringing much needed resources to those who need it most through their organizations, Lifehaven Support Society and the Christine Lamb Residence. These women are real life heroes, making measurable differences. And in many cases, they are literally saving lives. If you want to know more or help in any way, please feel free to reach out to me or find them online as all of their information is in our show notes. You can also find this show on Instagram by searching at Everyday Amazing Podcast and online www.everydayamazingpodcast.com. And if you enjoy listening, then please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and like us and give us amazing ratings wherever you can. Thanks so much for being with us today.